I've never been very good with the technological sort of things, but I am very grateful uh, to Neil for giving me the opportunity to be with you, and I always enjoy the opportunity to be with university students, and I'll start with the shameless plug. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm here, of course, it's to see you and to be with you, but also we have a number of opportunities for service in the summer months in various missions, activities in our part of the world. And so these would be in Wales, Ireland, Scotland, Cornwall, the Isle of Man, Brittany and France, northern Spain, the Basque Country, Galicia, and uh, northeast Italy in Ladinia and Friuli, Friulia, that part of the world. So, shameless plug, I will be over here after uh, our time together. If you would like to come over and look at some of the opportunities that we have. And because most of our context is quite post-Christian, uh, we tend to use people's natural passions, what you like to do, uh, in order to have a means of communicating and building rapport with the people who are over there. For example, we're looking for a couple of guys who are skateboarders uh, to use skateboarding as a means of connecting the gospel in a village in North Wales. Uh, the name of the village is Defrenantse, and uh, the village is Talasarn uh, there. And there's nothing much there. There isn't even a post office or a shop, but there is a large skate park, for whatever reason, surrounded by the Snowdonia Mountains in beautiful North Wales. Uh, it's a very dark place spiritually, though. Beautiful to look at, dark spiritually. There is no evangelical presence in that area. And it is a great way of connecting with children, teenagers, young adults, and the parents and use this. The reason we need a couple of guys is because they'd actually be living with me in a 150-year-old house uh, there in North Wales, skateboarding for the summer. Uh, if it's an incentive, one of my hobbies is gourmet cooking. So <laughs> if you'd like your little coq au vin, a little creme brulee, or something like that, uh, uh, we can just a little something I whipped up type of thing. So um, anyway. Uh, shameless plug, out of the way. Please come and talk to me about that. We have skateboarders, surfers, media people, um, golfers, all sorts of things like that. So any interest you have, we can probably plug you in in some way. Okay? There we are. We'll go, go forward now. I am delighted to be here, and this is my delighted face. Um, <laughs> my friends accuse me of being inscrutable. Uh, with my facial expressions as this is the excited face and the sad face and the exhilarated face, as you can see. You caught it there, the slight difference between them. <coughs> I really am excited to be here, even if I don't always show it. And in sort of going back and forward with Neil, we're kind of saying, well, what should I talk about? Uh, because I love to talk about the Bible, but I also love to talk about what we're doing and what God is doing through us. So I decided to mix it a little bit, tell you a little bit about the work, but also look at a passage of scripture that is quite important to us in our work. In fact, it's foundational. So I'm going to mix it all together. It's going to be sort of Virginia Woolf does missions type of thing in a stream of consciousness uh, with about five different verses and 25 stories that will be amalgamated into some sort of cohesive, uh, eloquent 
description of what we're doing. Probably not. But anyway, wishful thinking. And Neil, could you give me a five-minute warning? Because I would like to finish with a few moments for you to ask me some questions, if you'd like. Uh, I don't give my recipes out, if that's what you're asking. So, yeah. On occasion, you have to work, work for the recipe. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. And uh, the best way of doing this is look at small picture, big picture. Small picture is the situation in Wales, in North Wales. Uh, I told you the village is Talasarn. The language that we use in that area is Welsh. 90% uh, of the population would use Welsh. All of our schools are in Welsh. And in case you've not had much exposure to Welsh, I'll give you just a little bit. This is a passage of scripture, familiar to most people. John 3.16, and it is Do carov deu abid gamaint, nes idd roi nigfab, er mwyli bobin sy'n creddu o ddoef, beth yw mynd i ddistriw, ond cael, bywyd tragwyddol. So, that's Welsh. And anybody venture guess what I said? Thank you, there's one. One in every crowd. Well, for God so loved the world. Yes, it's a miracle. Um, <laughs> But 90% uh, of the population would speak this language. It really is their heart language. The children in the area uh, all go to Welsh medium schools. They usually can't function very well in English until they're maybe eight or nine years old. And even then, they have to work at it a bit. It is a second language. Of course, being in the UK, you're, you're bombarded with English. It's around you as well through the media. So eventually, they get fluent in English. But Welsh never stops being that first language for them. And of course, Wales has this wonderful spiritual history. You've probably read or heard about the Welsh revivals. No? Okay. It's really interesting and exciting um, because it was like an outpouring of the spirit upon an entire nation. And that area of North Wales at one point, the last of these revivals was in 1904-05. And just, um, I come from a Baptist denomination and just that denomination baptized 24,000 people in one year. And there were only about 2 million people in Wales at the time. Now they're just about 3 million. So everything's smaller in Wales. Um, which is, when you think about the aquatic mammal, that's, I don't know, there's some irony there. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so 100 years ago, 90% of the population would have been evangelical Christian. But over the last century, two world wars, a lot of other social and economic and different things happening, they're down to about 1% evangelical Christian in terms of the population. So we're sort of reintroducing the gospel. It's been very hard because people have sort of been inoculated against the gospel. And in fact, when I transferred to Wales from Romania, I thought it was going to be easy. Because when I was in Romania, and I lived in Transylvania, yes, there is a Transylvania, uh, and Transylvania was a bit of the Bible belt of Romania at the time. Really exciting things were happening. You would, uh, people would go into a village, show the Jesus film, and, and they'd have a, a core group. It was, it was astounding. People were responsive. So I had all the training, did all the stuff in Romania. We did all that kind of thing. I go to Wales, and I think, well, I'll, I'll learn Welsh, and then we'll get it, all this stuff translated, and we'll get everybody trained, and we're all going to do the evangelism training, and they're going to go out, and next Welsh revival in about five years, uh, done and dusted, as we say in Britain. After about five years of doing 
everything I had been trained to do in evangelism and in missions, everything. Not only was it unproductive, it was counterproductive. It was almost like it was pushing people away. So at that point, I had to, to go to the Lord and really say, I, I do not know what to do. I have done everything I've been trained to do, and nothing is working. Are these people unreachable? I was thinking, do, do I need to dust off the dust off my feet and just say, they've rejected, they're unreachable? And through that process, the Lord really ministered to my own spirit with a couple of words. One was straight out of, the, out of the scriptures, and it was the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you've ever been to a missions conference or heard a mission sermon, you've probably heard someone speak about Isaiah 6. And you have this wonderful image of Isaiah in the temple, and it's very dramatic, and you have the cherubim, the seraphim, who are, who are shouting to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the pillars of the temple shook, and it was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone. Yes, I, I learned the King James Bible a hundred years ago when we were uh, looking at it. And then you have one of these beings come and they, with tongs from the altar, taking a burning ember and touches the lips of Isaiah and says, you're cleansed. And then you segue suddenly to a heavenly conversation. Whom shall we send and who will go for us? And what does Isaiah do? Jumps up and says, here am I, send me. Familiar? Of course. And to his credit, I do think it was an enthusiastic, here am I, send me. There's no sense in the text that he's looking around and it's like nobody else's, you know, everybody's heads are down. It's like, well, here am I, send me. No, here am I, send me. And he said yes to God before he knew what the task was. Isn't that amazing? His answer was yes to God. It didn't matter what the task was. But that's where we usually stop the passage. And when I was looking at it again in this time of searching, the Lord said, read on. And here's John's paraphrase. Go back and read it tonight if you get a chance. But I'll just go quickly through it. Basically, God says, go and speak to a people who will not listen to you. And in fact, I will close their ears so they cannot understand your message. Well, that's where I was, right there. And I was asking the same question that Isaiah asks in the text. How long, Lord? And the answer was, that's your job. See, Western Europe was a bit like that situation in Isaiah 6. People had a sense of what institutional Christianity was all about. They thought they knew what Christianity is, and they have rejected it. We use the term post-Christian to describe it. They have said, we have been there, done that, it didn't work, what's next? They have seen institutional Christianity as a failed experiment of history to be relegated to the trash heap of history. What is next? 
And it occurred to me that our role is to be obedient to the message that God has given us. And he will change the hearts. Because even in Isaiah 6, there's the promise of Messiah. In the stump, it said, there will be a stump remaining, the roots there. And then it took me to another passage in Mark chapter 4. If you start the chapter, you'll see the parable of the sower. But as you go into the passage, you have the parable of the farmer. And it says that a farmer sowed the seed, and the sun came up, it rained, it sprouted. He did not know how. I like that. He did not know how. But in due season, when the grain was ripe, he put in his sickle for harvest. When does the farmer work? In the sowing and the reaping. When does the farmer not work? In the growing. And it occurred to me, I spent so much time and effort trying to make people grow spiritually, trying to make people become Christians who are not Christians, rather than sharing a message and letting God do his work in their lives and let me do what I'm called to do. That was the first word right out of the scripture. The second word that he gave me was one of those times, and I'm very reluctant to use that kind of language, because whenever I say the Lord said, that's basically a prophetic statement, and I don't want to be guilty of false prophecy at that point. But it was one of those things that was so clear in my mind that I almost looked around. I was like, okay, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And it was this word, he said, John, don't push people into the kingdom, pull them in. Pull them in. And it dawned on me, everything I'd been doing was just trying to push them in, push them in, have a hand, pray a prayer, sign a card. Whether they were regenerated or not, whether they, I had given them time to, to ruminate on the the food that God had placed in their lives, or not. And I think about Jesus, who is winsome and perfect. And I thought, Jesus was sinless, and the worst people in society loved to hang out with him. Prostitutes, tax collectors, Romans, the dregs of humanity in that society they loved Jesus, and I thought, do lost people like hanging out with John? Probably not. Actually, Christians don't either, so <laughs> uh, I was kind of used to it by that time. Uh, anyway, uh, but I thought, okay, how do we draw people? And it occurred to me that I had come from a Christian bubble. I had come from a context, all my friends were Christians. Uh, all my social connections were Christians. If I went out to a film, it was with Christians. If I went out to eat, it was Christians. If I had fun, it was with Christians. And nobody asked me about my friends who were not yet believers. When I was appointed as a missionary, no one asked me that question. And I found, you know what, I've, I've forgotten just how to be a normal person with people, and to love them, really love them, and enjoy spending time with them. So we came up with something that's called our 
our sixfold incarnational strategy, which sounds most elevated. It's not. It's not rocket science at all. If I had a whiteboard here, I would write it up on the whiteboard just to make, make it look more interesting. But here it is. I'll give it to you. It's easy. It's not rocket science. It's how to train us just to, be, just to be normal again and spend time with people. The first thing, though, is prayer. And what I mean by prayer here is praying that the Lord would draw our friends to himself, that he would give the gift of himself to our friends, the people we love, the people in our families, our classmates, our roommates, our friends, our neighbors. And we pray regularly. We pray for all sorts of things. We pray that our team will win. We'll, we pray for a parking place at the Walmart. All these things. We pray for lots of stuff. But when's the last time we begged God for the souls of the people who are dearest to us? Oh, God, draw my friend to you. Lord Jesus, show yourself to my friend, my brother, my sister. Prayer. Second, open home. It's what I often call the lost art of hospitality. I love to cook. I wasn't lying about being sort of a gourmet cook. We do French, Italian, Spanish, all sorts of things. I love to cook. I also like to eat, which you probably wouldn't have figured out. But I, I like food. I don't love food. I don't worship it. You know, it's not my God, but I like it. I like cooking it. I like eating it. And I love it when people come to my house and they eat. And I'm, all, I'm the person who's like, here, another plate. Have one. You need more food. You know, like, no, I've eaten all that I can eat. No, really, you need some more. And so we'll have, we invite our neighbors to come eat. Come and eat, have coffee, have a piece of cake, have something. I once had an old preacher in the hills of Tennessee to say, you know what I love, one thing I love about Jesus is he never turned anyone down for a meal. The good stuff happens around the table, in our homes. And I, I tell you, if you open your home to people, they will open their home to you. So open home. And I, I often am in churches uh, with people who you know, have families, they're in the job, they're in the career, sometimes they're approaching retirement. And I just challenge them. I said, when's the last person, when's the last time you had a person who didn't know Jesus yet in your home for a meal? And it's not one of these things, you get them there, you tempt them with food, then you lock the doors. <laughs> it's like... Now we're going to do my study from Leviticus on mold and mildew. You will love it. It'll change your life. No, we don't, we don't lock the doors and trap them. But we, we just share. And often I will say, I, I'll say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and it's my tradition to say a word of thanks before we eat. Do you mind if I do that? And they're like, well, no, no, you know, they don't mind it. And many of them don't have any church background, so they assume the position you know, in there. And I don't preach a sermon in the prayer. Lord, it reminds me of Romans 3.10. No, there's none good. No, not one. 
And then that reminds me that you were the perfect sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. No, I'm, you know, thank you for the food. It's good. Let's have fun. Thank you for, for life and friends and celebration. Open home. Third thing, ministry of hanging out. In post-Christian Western Europe, people aren't coming to your church. It doesn't matter what you're doing there. They're not coming to your building. They're just not. Those days are gone. So if they're not coming to you and you want to interact with them, where are they? Well, you go find wherever that is. I think if you were to cut me, I would bleed brown because I drink copious amounts of coffee and tea. Uh, the coffee shops, that's where I go. That's my hangout place, and I spend hours there. I've done it here in the States as well. I was on a furlough once in Hendersonville, Tennessee, country music people there. And I found a Starbucks there that was clear that this is where people went. There wasn't just people passing through. They, they stayed there. So I thought, well, I'm just going to go there, and that'll be my hangout place. And I, I always bring something weird with me to read. So if people ask me what I'm reading, it might be a conversation starter. Mine happened to be Arthurian legends in Old Welsh, as one does. Um, <clears throat> So, I mean, you do get some questions about that. But then I would, uh, I'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute. I would make Welsh cakes, which are, which are highly addictive, um, little sweets from Wales. Um, not from Wales, but from the country of Wales. <laughs> and I would bring them to the staff. And I would just, here, I, these are from Wales, I live in Wales, here's some for the staff. And they're like, wow, nobody's ever done anything for us before. And then they would give them to the regulars. So it was interesting, the conversations. I remember one New Year's, New Year's Eve. It's pretty pathetic. I'm in Starbucks on New Year's Eve. But there, there you go. And these three teenagers come in. And they see me, and they see me reading my book. And, and they're like, what are you reading? And I showed it to them. I said, what could you make of that? And they're like, we don't know. What is it? And they were kind of excited. It was very strange. Um, and I said, have you ever heard of King Arthur? Yes. And it was like, well, these are like the original old stories in Old Welsh. Wow. And then so they asked me questions. And I thought, I'm going to kind of do the Jesus thing and answer their questions with questions. So they said, well, well where do you live? I said, where do you think I might live? And they were like, what? <laughs> I'm like... Where do you think I might live? It, and believe me, it takes a while to get to Wales. It, you know, it, it doesn't just flow off the tongue. And so they're kind of into this at this point, oddly. And they, uh, and they said, well, what do you do? And I was like, what do you think I do? <laughs> and it, gets, it takes a while to get to missionary, too, you know, in Wales. So, but it was just hanging out. It just, it just where, go be where people are. Not rocket science. Fourth thing, interests. Uh, is anyone here interested in anything? <laughs> Probably. Do you think that there are people who are not yet believers, that you'd love to be believers, who are interested in similar things? Yes. But, you know, we always want to do the church thing. It's like, let's say everyone here at USC loves to fish. They're just, you're fisher people. It's just, oh, every spare moment when you're not in class, you're out at the, the lake fishing. And you're saying, you know what we need to do? We need to have a Christian fisherman's club. 
And we'll invite all our people who don't know the Lord, and they'll come, and they'll become believers. But the only problem with that is that if you start a fi Christian fisherman's club, you're most likely going to get a Christian fisherman's club. Another way to look at it is to say, you know, in our group here, in our church, or our challenge group, we have, like, all these fisher people. Let's commission them to join all the fishermen's clubs out in the community, and we'll send them out as teams to infect them with the gospel where they are. Interests, use that. Uh, five, needs. How could you reach people with needs? And a lot of times we want to do the grand gesture, the big thing. Sometimes it's a little thing. Sometimes it's just a little thing that really makes a difference. Opening a door, baking a cookie, here's a cookie, uh, paying for somebody behind. But here's the thing, you know in the scripture it talks about giving financially, not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing, the anonymity thing. This isn't the time for anonymity. They need to see you meeting a need. Otherwise, they're not going to connect the dots. It's like you're going to stand on a roof and throw cupcakes at people. <laughs> and it's going to hit them on the head. And it's like, wow, I was hungry and I wanted a cupcake. But where did it come from? It came from heaven. What do I do? I don't know, you know. Uh, did the cupcake God give it to me? What, what happened here? You know, we sometimes do, it's like, we're going to do something really nice. Nobody knows who or how it happened. Sometimes they need to know and you need to have the opportunity to say, uh, the Lord has been gracious to me and I'm being gracious with you. The final thing, sixth thing, is a verbal witness. We have to be able to connect the dots. They have to know why. And usually they're only going to know why is if we talk. But we would say, this is not necessarily the gospel presentations. Often we learn these and they're good. I mean, I'm old, so... We did the Romans Road, or the Bridge to Life, or Three Circles, or uh, Sixty Second Gospel. You know, all these, all these methods are good. But in our context, those come later, not at the front. You need to know know what that means, but usually not at the front. But how are we witnessing before that? Two things when it comes to verbal witness for us. First of all, it's a conversation. It's a conversation. And you kind of have to be genuinely interested in the other person. I find people interesting. So I kind of watch them, which they make is a little unnerving when they're watching me watching them. It's like, hmm, that's very interesting. And, but I watch people, and, I, and I'm interested in people. How could you be interested in people and ask them questions? And in a conversation, you should be listening about twice as much as you talk. Because if you honor people that way, they will ask you the question. Well, what do you think about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what I think about that. So conversation, which means good questions and listening to people. It also means actually being interested in them. Uh, second, Jesus stories. Two types of Jesus story. First of all, the stories from the Bible. Marinate your lives in the stories of Jesus and the Gospels. Michael Frost is one of my favorite missiologists, and that's the term he used. Marinate your lives in the Gospels. Yes, it is a food reference. If you marinate something, it takes on the flavor. 
And if you become so familiar with the actual words and deeds of Jesus and his life, you can share these stories in everyday conversation. You know, I look at the book of Acts, the growth of the early church, and there is no evangelism training program in the book of Acts. No one actually tells them to share their faith. But the church is increasing. How is this possible? They can't help but talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about that in a second. How much time do I have this? Good? Okay. Again, it's kind of stream of consciousness. Right? Um, so, uh, the stories of Jesus. But there's a second type of Jesus story, and that's your personal Jesus story. Now, for, for those of us who have come to faith and we have a living faith in Jesus, there, there's a story attached to that. Some people might have been raised in a Christian home and, and they're Christians. And they may not even be able to tell you exactly when that happened, but it's, it's so, it was sort of a process. Others like me who didn't come from a Christian family, it was October the 31st, 1979. And it's my testimony. It's how I came to know the Lord and it's an interesting, well, it's not that interesting, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway, since I'm the one talking with the microphone. A uh, little bit about it. I, I was reading words to a hymn, old hymn that we no longer sing, called Whosoever Meaneth Me. And I was like, wow, I'm a good kid. I really was a good kid. I, I didn't run around. I did what my parents told me to do. I was... And at night, I was studious, I was, I was a good kid. But I thought, there's still something broken in me. And I can't fix it. And that whosoever meaneth me, too. And at that time, I prayed for the Lord to come in and save me, to change me, to, to fix me. And it was instantaneous change. And in school, they had given me the little green Gideon's New Testament, which I'd never opened. And it was sitting on my dresser. I like to think it was the spotlight from heaven that then shone upon it. <laughs> it wasn't quite that, but my eyes were drawn to it. And then I took it to school with me every day, and I just read it. I read through the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs, because that's what was in it, about three or four times. And for Christmas, I got a whole Bible. It's like, what? There's more? You know. Um, but that's my Jesus story, and we have these stories. But I would, if you're talking to a Welsh person, it's very pragmatic. Most Western Europeans are. They don't know what to do with that, but, you know, it's like, wow, there's something. I don't know what to do with that, but it's your story. They'll listen to that. It's a powerful thing. But if that's your only Jesus story, they're going to say, well, what has he done for you lately? And... That's a good question. And a lot of times when the students come, we do trading with them, and I say, what's your Jesus story from today? There's a part of North Wales that I drive that's on the coast. The mountains are on one side, the Irish Sea is on the other side. There are flowers, there are sheep, it's pastoral. It's, like, it's, a, it's a postcard. And I've lived there for 25 years, and I never tire of it. And every time I pass it, I have a Jesus experience because I think, 
the God who spoke everything, all of this into existence, calls me friend by the sacrifice of Jesus. How exciting. Sixfold incarnational strategy. I'm going to say a little bit more about the work and then do a final thing, one verse from the scripture. We work with people who speak the forgotten languages of Europe. Has anyone ever heard of French? Yes. Uh, many of you took French class. Je parle, tu parles, il parle, nous parlons, encore, you know. Um, you've done your verb conjugations. Or you've heard of French, you've heard of Spanish, you've heard of Italian, Norwegian, Danish, Finnish, you've heard of these languages. But what about Mingrelian, or Friulian, or Komi, or Udmurt, or Khanti, or Ladin? There are a hundred million people in Europe today who speak one of these indigenous minority languages as their heart language. And in our research, they're almost entirely unengaged. I was just in Galicia, in Spain, where the Galician language is spoken by two million people. There isn't a single evangelical church in their language. Thank the Lord that uh, the, the Catholic church at least has mass in Galician, in the village. Otherwise, there would be no exposure to the scripture in their language. And so all of these people groups without a witness, and that's what we try to do. And that's how we tie people like you into the work. I said the shameless plug was over, but there it is again. But all of them require something deeper in us than just business as usual. It's easy for us to use all of our methodologies, and these things are good. They're not bad. Methodologies are strategies, all of these things, and kind of have a set approach, and if you follow the plan, it's like, just add water, and here's your church. But we find that before any of that, something deep needs to happen in us. And this is the verse I wanted to share with you. Real quick, real, real quick. And in fact, I share this verse every summer with our, our students. And even the repeaters are like, are you going to talk about that verse? Yes. You're going to hear it again. Because it's so fundamental for us that if you can't get this, you really can't get in any of the rest of it. And if you're going to reach these people who are desperate for connection and authenticity, you have to keep this in mind. It is Acts 1.8. One of the great missionary verses again, just like Isaiah. Oops, maybe I should do it in English. <laughs> Sorry. Wrong language. There we are. Ah, oh, there it is. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will, be wit you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Anyone ever heard that before? All my life, I consider considered this verse as a permutation of the Great Commission, the end of Matthew, the end of Luke, the end of Mark. But I was reading it about six years ago. I was reading it in the Greek, 
And I had always interpreted, you, you shall be witnesses to me as a command. Just like the Great Commission, you make disciples. That's actually the only command word in the Great Commission. Make disciples. But I was reading it, and it's, it's, not, it's not a command at all. It's in the future indicative for the Greek people who like that. So, so what? Well, it changes it from a commandment to a prophetic utterance of Jesus. Jesus is speaking prophetically here. And again, so what? What's the difference? Well, it changes the emphasis from doing to being. And it changes witness from being a verb to being a noun. And this is interesting because I've had people say to me all my life, John, do you want to go out witnessing? And now when I hear it, I, I feel like saying, well, what were you doing before? Four thoughts, and I'm, I'm not going to give you my full sermon thing, just four quick thoughts. First of all, in order for us to be part of the implementation of Jesus' prophecy, and what he's describing here is exactly what happened in the early church. Four things. First of all, we have to be clear on the message. Some years ago, I was at a church out here in California for a missions conference, and I was with their teenagers, and the youth pastor asked me a question. He said, I like to ask people this question to get different perspectives. He said, John, what is the gospel? You know, we don't really ask that question very often. What is the gospel? And I gave an answer almost instantaneously that I've had to consider ever since because I don't know where it came from. But I said instantaneously, Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. We are introducing a person to people. And Jesus is a reality. He is a personal reality. He is alive today. I can say today with all honesty that even though you're here and I can come up and I can touch you and I can see you, I can hear you, I, could, I guess I could smell you if I wanted to do that, I can, I can access you with all of my senses, but I can say with absolute certainty and honesty that I, can, I feel that Jesus is more real to me because I've known him longer. We'd have lots of programs and lots of things. Learn the gospel presentations. Learn the methodology. Get all these things. There's great, they're great, but there is no substitute for a life that's set ablaze by the real presence of Jesus. And I read all sorts of helps for pastors and missionaries and things. Ten, ten ways to grow your church or, you know, five ways to be a better person or whatever it is, a better Christian. And I read them. Good advice. But you can read them and never even see the name of Jesus. And we say, Jesus is a given. <laughs> Neil and I were talking over supper. It's like, sometimes I wonder, do people actually hear what comes out of their mouths sometimes? Think of Jesus is a given? Jesus is everything. It starts with the message, and the message is Jesus. Now, if you want to know me, you're going to need to know some stuff about me. You want to know Jesus? You're going to need to know some stuff about him. You're going to need to know that he was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. 
He died a sacrificial death on the cross. He rose again. You need to know this stuff. But the person of Jesus is greater than the sum of these parts. And he's alive today. Jesus is the message. We're introducing people to a person. Second thing, you kind of have to have the right, I guess the right means of going about it. And it says, you will be witnesses to me. It's interesting that that word witness in Greek is very close to the word for martyr. Comes from the same root word. Interesting. What does a witness do? Witness testifies to what he or she has seen and experienced. Now, I used to love the old lawyer shows and cop shows and things like that, the whodunits. And, you know, they're in court, and imagine that there's been an automobile accident, and the, the lawyer is talking to the person in the dock, <clears throat> or whatever that's called here in America. <clears throat> and he says, okay, about what time did the accident happen, sir? And the witness says, uh, noon? And the lawyer says, well, no, it happened at night. Okay, never mind. Next question. What color was the car that ran through the stoplight? Green? No, it was a white car. If, if this continues, what can you assume? He didn't see it. He didn't experience it. A lot of times we get confused in all the presentations when all we need to do is just share our experience, share our Jesus stories with them. Say, you know what, I don't know the answer to all that. But just like the blind man in John 9, I don't know who did this, but this I know. I was blind, and now I see. The right means. Right methodology. It talks about Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Now, if this is a command, we think this is a strategy, right? And I have preached this before and taught people, okay, folks, what is our Jerusalem? What's our Judea? What's our Samaria? What's, what, what, where are these places for us? And how are we going to reach them? Well, if it's a prophetic utterance of Jesus, there's no strategy to it. He's just saying this is what's happened. What he's, what, what he's saying is that the gospel always moves outwardly. It's always moving. So basically, if a witness is who we are, wherever we are, we're a witness. Wherever we go, we bring the kingdom. We bring the presence of Jesus wherever we go physically as his people. If we're in Jerusalem, we bring the kingdom. If we go to Walmart, we bring the kingdom. If we go on holiday to Hawaii, we bring the kingdom. It's not something we have to do, it's just who we are. And we can't change that. For example, let me give you something to think about. I am a human. I think we can agree on that. <laughs> I am also a man. I'm a human man. Okay? Are we agreed? Okay. Fair, close enough. <laughs> but let's just say, oh, I, one day I wake up and it's like, this man thing is exhausting. I'm just, oh, I can't do it. I'm just, I, I need a break from the whole man thing. I want to be a cat. Couple weeks, holidays, a cat. I have a little saucer of milk. I can sit on top of the sofa. I can withhold love and affection from whomever I will. Uh, wait a minute, I already do that. Um, I, you know, I, I, I can do the cat thing. I have that fun little sandbox, you know. Um, 
all this stuff. Doesn't sound great. I just need a break. I'll be a cat. The only problem is it's ridiculous. Why? Because I'm not a cat. I'm a human man. If Jesus has transformed your life and bought it by his blood, you are a witness to the fact, and you cannot change it. It is your identity now, your your heredity now. And you can no more change it than you can turn into a cat for a little break from being whatever you are. Um, Well, you're people, (laughs) you're humans. There you go. Yes, I can say that with confidence. (laughs) Final thing. We have to be clear about where the power comes from. Jesus starts by saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You see, it is that risen power of Jesus, or the power of the risen Jesus, I've got my adjectives mixed up in English, that is working in us, that is changing us, that's transforming us. And we can never forget that, because sometimes we can go through the motions and we get, get so busy doing the Christian thing that we almost don't even need Jesus to keep it going. But I always come back to John 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can only do a few things. Oh, wait a minute, sorry. Apart from me, you can do some stuff, but it won't be as good. No, wait a minute. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we don't get this, nothing else happens in mission. Nothing else happens in evangelism. And if you take this, what is the definition of evangelism? It is simply an intentionality to be in proximity with those who do not know him so we may be the witness that he has created us to be. We would be the light that he has made us to be. We don't have to change that. We just be ourselves. But we do need to be intentional about sharing our lives with the world, being in proximity. Because a lot of times in churches, we get this mixed up, and I hate to say it because I am one of these people, but we almost look at evangelism like guerrilla warfare. We get all hyped up, we got everything prepared, we go out in the community, we go door to door, and we, we share, and as quickly as possible, we run back to the church where it's safe. We survived another witnessing encounter. God never promises us safety. He does not promise us comfort, but he promises us life that is abundant with purpose and hope. Just some thoughts for tonight. Bit of mission, bit of Bible, I can't juggle, which would be the perfect ending to this, or do anything. I can't tap dance either. I have the cane, but, but hopefully it'll get us thinking oh, about things. I don't know. I told you it was going to be a stream of consciousness. Oh, thank you. Thank you for handling what I call the staff of power. <laughs> um, but I hope that it's got us thinking. 
because everything I shared with you is essential for what we're doing in cross-cultural missions, but it's just as fundamental for what you're doing here. It's just as usable and transferable. So that's all I got. Well, I, I actually could say a lot more, but I won't. <laughs> I want to give you a couple minutes, maybe some questions or some thoughts. Maybe you even have uh, something in your own Christian walk that, that mirrors this, and you're like, you know what, I had an experience like that, or I thought about that. So maybe five or six minutes if you have some questions or comments or anything like that. Yes. It's, it's a strange combination between gifting, like supernatural gifting, and just an intense interest. Um, I, I'm the guy who, rather than reading a novel, unless it was in Russian, would, um, would, would read uh, inter, uh, you know, a grammar of Lithuanian. And that's what would be by, by my bedside. Or, you know, Homeric Greek, or I, I, don't, I just, my thing. Uh, but also the Lord has really given me a gift that I can't take any credit. Like when I was your age, you know, before the wars, um, <laughs> I was in Yugoslavia, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I was there for three weeks doing a summer missions thing. And before I left, I had preached twice in Croatian. Uh, I can't take any credit for that. That's the Lord. So it's a mix of just supernatural gifting and I just love it. It's my hobby, so. Fluently, I speak passable English, Welsh, and Romanian. But I can get by in most of the other Romance languages. Um, so, in fact, um, I, I make my missionary colleagues mad because they're struggling learning French or something. It's like, it's practically English. Why, what's the problem there? Um, you know, <clears throat> because English has about 45% of our vocabulary is from French or Latin. So I say, why is this such a problem for you? You already have 3,000 words of vocabulary. Um, but I also do some of the Germanic, some of the Slavic. I can be polite in Hungarian and a uh, bit of modern Greek. Of course, I had to do biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew a long time ago uh, when the tablets were given. Uh, that's <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, uh, so I can, I'd say fluent in three. I can do fairly well about five or six others, and I can say something in about, I don't know, 10, 15 more, something like that. Uh, and I can do a lot of reading, uh, even though, like, my Russian is not great speaking. But uh, if you're reading grammatical, t uh, linguistic things, a lot, of the, 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 a lot of the terminology is the same. So, I mean, uh, you just sort of, you can wade through it. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could do a, a different discipline and be able to wade through it as well. So. Yes. Yeah, you know, I, I was talking about this at a Sunday school class at a church I was doing a conference, and uh, one of the ladies said, you know, I do this sort of hanging out, what you're talking about with my friends at work who are not believers, but, and, but she was saying that sometimes I think they're influencing me more than I'm influencing them, so that's an excellent question. 
And I, I just thought, and I said, well, here, here's some thoughts. First of all, uh, try to find another believer at work to, do, to go with you. What I've found in our context is that the individual witness is important. Um, and that's important in the European context as well. But I'll tell you what's really powerful to them is community. And if you have a couple people who are believers, and she said, well, she worked at a fire, uh, what, where do the firemen live? What is that called? Fire station. And uh, uh, she said that the station master was a believer. And I said, well, be strategic, plan to go together to spend time and talk. And even, even if they start being interested in your message, it's hard to join a person. You know, let's say you, you invite them. It's, it's kind of weird joining just one person, but if you have two or three, that's less weird. And one can be praying while the other one is talking, that sort of thing. I also said in your Sunday school class, since you had a prayer thing anyway, what is it, a chain? I can't seem to speak English tonight. Um, I said, say, I'm about to spend some time with my, my colleagues who aren't believers. Please pray for me that the Lord would give me, you know, the words to say, that I would be, would be a f true friend to them and love them. And I said, the third thing that you may need to do, because you are getting all this stuff, and it does kind of change your thinking uh, in a way, um, they used to say, you know, garbage in, garbage out sometimes. It's, it changes you a bit. I said it means you may need to go home and, and fill your mind and your ears and your senses with something good, something positive. It could be music you like, or um, I love listening to audio Bibles. Like, and especially, I do the language thing, so I like doing it just playing at night. Like, I'll put on a, a Portuguese... Bible, and I'll just kind of listen to it, and I fade off to sleep, and you know, comes back. I'm not saying that you learn it by osmosis. You know, I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't quote the the Bible in Portuguese. Uh, but it's just one of those things. You know, I'm understanding it. I have to work at it. Then I kind of fade off. I wake up a little bit, and I think you have to put that in back in. And so I think you know, community, directly community through prayer, and also. Put some good things in your in your senses if you're being influenced that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe one more question. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, things have changed because it was slow, 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 slow. Even doing that, uh, you'd at least get people to kind of engage, and that's the thing. People people will discuss spiritual matters with you. They'll discuss spirituality. They'll discuss religion. You turn it to them, over. It just, it takes a long, long, long time to get there. But we're starting to see some openness in young people. Uh, because in, in Wales and in a lot of Western European areas, their parents and their grandparents left the church in protest. It's like nothing good can be there bunch of hypocrites, religion is bad, Christianity is bad. So we find that teenage rebellion is kind of working for us <laughs> because their parents are saying, oh, don't go to the chapels or the churches, nothing good is happening there. And they're like, I wonder what's going on at the chapel. You know, uh, 
uh, it, uh, really, and it's like, hmm, good, because they have no experience of church. They've never read the Bible. Uh, we, we use a lot of teenagers coming over as well because I said, in that part of North Wales, your average 15, 16-year-old kid has never met a believer his own age, has never seen one, never met one. I said, you're going to be the first believers who are not, you know, 80 that they've ever seen, not, not a nine natide, grandma and grandpa. Uh, and so we are beginning to see some openings. We're also be, uh, seeing that interest thing happening. For example, we did basketball. Uh, we did some basketball clinics. It made a difference. Uh, we had some people who um, were trying to get into, what is the, the, the kind of really athletic uh, jumping, running thing? that people do. What is it? Uh, parkour, is that right? Did I say it right? I should know, be, being so athletic and myself. Um, cross, crossfit, crossfit, okay. Um, okay, but I mean, we had a guy, because one of the kids liked to do that. So it's like trying to find those connection points. Uh, American football is becoming more popular, believe it or not. So uh, we had one of our guys join a local team. Uh, so sport is always good. Uh, many of us join choirs, that sort of thing. It, it's slow. It's still slow. But we are seeing kind of a glimmer, a little bit of openness in a younger generation. So that's good. And you're, you're, I'm hearing this from people in other places as well, and in places that have been really tough, like France and Italy and, and Spain, that uh, there's an openness with kind of teenagers, university age right now, because they have zero church background, none. They've sort of been out of it. Or, oh, yes. Uh, a lot of times it, depend, it depends on what I'm speaking. Um, so if I'm speaking in Welsh, I'm thinking in Welsh. Uh, I find like preaching, like in the pulpit, doing the preaching thing, um, is hard because I only preach in Welsh, in Wales. And corporate prayer is really hard in English. I'm just so used to doing it in Welsh that I really have to think about it and it's a bit halting. So I think kind of churchy things are more Welsh now probably than than other. When I'm doing my personal Bible study, that's usually in English, uh, sometimes supplemented with other languages type of thing. So it, it kind of depends on what I'm speaking. I do, well, uh, you know the, um, I use the app now, the, the Bible.com. <laughs> it's like, yay, you know, I can have, I can have everything right there, at the, my fingers, you know. Um, uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, I do have a lot of Bibles because uh, some of them are obscure and they're kind of hard to find, but they, they actually, like uh, Bible.com, they do really well. Uh, they have a lot of the languages that we use, so yeah, that's, that's nice. Like, like, this is the Bible I'm using tonight. I was. It's also my phone. <laughs> and my sat-nav. What do, you, what do you call that here? Thank you. That thing. Gets me, it got me here tonight. So, yeah. One more question.
oh dear, I've exhausted the questions. <laughs> well, I do thank you uh, for the opportunity to be here. C can I pray for you just a moment, and then I'll turn things over to Neil or whoever will finish things up. Lord Jesus, we celebrate you. We love you. You have changed us, you have transformed us, you have given yourself to us and you walk with us and you live with us and we thank you for that. And I just pray for these my new friends tonight. Uh, Lord, I may not get to, to know each and every one or know their situations or their names, but I pray for them now that your presence would be in their lives, would be a reality that would just permeate every, every part of them, that they they would be able to rejoice and celebrate you. Lord, I, I know that many of the people here may be going through, through difficult times. Maybe there's some sadness, maybe stress, or, or just life. So I pray that you would minister to them, that your presence would give them a moment of calm, would give them some encouragement, would give them strength and the assurance that they're not going through these things alone. Lord, I pray that you would move in the hearts of all here, that they would seek you, they would hear your voice, and, do, and then do whatever it is you tell them to do. So I pray as well that you would give them the gift of both calling and obedience. So, Lord, I commit my brothers and sisters to you now, and I thank you for them, and I pray that you would always be a reality in their lives, each and every one. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.